I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. Welcome to Season 2. Following Hot on the Hills of Season 1, we've decided to skip our plan break so that we can continue to bring you episodes as we all continue being bored out of our brain during lockdown. Yep, seems reasonable. Yeah, I think so. Quick shout out to Darren Goodall this week for liking and sharing posts on Facebook this week. Thank you, Del. Liam Ford and Jay Barnes have also been quick to click the share button on Facebook again this week. Thank you both for your continued support. We've also got some five-star reviews to read out. Ooh, lucky us. The first is from Bonnie Lee, writing about crime from Canada. Really enjoying this podcast. Dan and Elaine are great hosts and the podcast interesting and engaging. Subscribed. Thank, Thank you. you very much. The second is from Nico Dog Rescue from the UK. Binging is good. Having heard a recommendation on one of the other true crime podcasts, I decided to try this one, especially as I prefer Tales from the UK. Ended up binging the lot and looking forward to the next one. Very well presented and most enjoyable. Goes on to say, no adverts apart from the gorgeous sound of vodka that I'm not going to be able to get in Spain, unfortunately. Keep up the good work. I couldn't do it. Oh, thank you both. Uh, should point out that Kin Vodka we mentioned, it wasn't an advert. It was just a vodka that we stumbled across, which was so nice. While we were recording the podcast, we decided to give it a shout out. We did. We actually found it initially at the Chester Christmas Market. We did. Um, and we bought it there and then drank it way too fast. <laughs> <laughs> and then recently we saw some toffee vodka in the supermarket, which I think was Tip Tree. Was it? Tip Tree, which is fantastic jam, yes. but not great vodka. Yeah, it, I mean, it was all right, but it just wasn't as smooth. The, the Kin Vodka, you just want to drink it neat. Yep, so I tracked Kin <laughs> Vodka down on uh, Facebook and uh, yeah, got a bottle sent out and it was lush. Mm. Um, if you do want to leave us a review, you can do it at ratethispodcast.com forward slash STC. STC as in sublime true crime. Uh-huh. I might use that in future instead of trying to say the actual. Just saying, STC. STC. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our best to read out the five star reviews of the podcast where we can. And thank you to the person who had mentioned us in their podcast. We appreciate it. Yep, thank you very much. We've got another promo this week, this time for the brilliant Jen and Cam of our True Crime podcast. Take it away, guys. How do you do? Jen and Cam feel it would be unkind to present this program without a friendly word of warning. We are about to unfold our True Crime podcast. A podcast of lifelong friends who seek to examine crimes which were committed without reckoning upon God. The discussion will be frank, and the subject matter will be of a grim and violent nature. I think it will thrill you. It might even horrify you. So, if there are young children listening, or if you feel unwilling to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Thank you both. That was brilliant. Mm. Look forward to hearing more from them. Yes. And this episode is yet again brought to you via lockdown. It is. And yep. uh, this week we have been working, school working, drinking tea, yep. and baking scones and biscuits. Yes. Yeah. And doing jigsaws. Yes. And counting down the hours every single day. Oh, that's just you. That's just me because I'm on furlough and I'm bored. <laughs> yeah. I, did, I managed to write a few more podcast episodes this week. Not like last week where I did three quarters of one the whole week. Yeah, you hit your stride a bit this week. You, a little bit, You yes. achieved stuff. Yeah. I think it's because otherwise I've got threats that I'm going to give you loads of other jobs to do. So you, no, no, I'm busy. I'm busy. No, I'm, I'm busy, busy writing, writing podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't make me go and paint this on my house. <laughs> oh, God. It's a shed. 
It's not a shed. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to this week's story. This week, the case of Benjamin Lang, the classifieds killer. 25-year-old Alison Mannering was excited. In just nine days' time, she would be moving to a new home with her fiancé, Gordon Healis, a hospital worker. It was Thursday, 23rd of April, 1992, and Alison and Gordon had spent the evening measuring their new home for curtains. At 10.30pm, the couple said goodbye to each other, and Alison drove home to her father's house in Aldersley Gardens in Barking, East London, where she was living in the run-up to the move. Matthew Mannering, 62, was a retired bank messenger who was getting ready for bed as his daughter made her way home. A widower, after his wife had died from cancer two years before, Matthew still lived an active life. Matthew's day had been productive. His son Mark had asked his dad to sell his car for him, and Matthew had placed an advert in the local paper which had been published that day. The paper had only been out for a few hours when Matthew received a call from someone asking about the Escort XR3i. After a few questions, the caller asked to come and see the car, and arrangements were made for him to visit the next morning. A knock at the door at around 10.30pm startled Matthew. He certainly wasn't expecting anybody that late at night, and made his way to the front door, assuming that maybe Alison had misplaced her keys. He opened the door to a young man who apologised for calling so late, saying that he had called about the car earlier, and although he wasn't due until the next morning, he happened to be passing, and wondered if he could look at the car now. 10.30 at night. I know. You get a very quick answer from me. Yeah. Which is a bit along the lines of, I was in bed. <laughs> yeah, me too. I wouldn't even answer the door that time of night, I don't think. I've been in bed for hours. I know. <laughs> at 10.30 at night, I would have been in my pyjamas for at least four and a half hours by <laughs> that true. point. <laughs> you know what I'm like. <laughs> I always remember that when my uncle had come round to, to visit and he rang to say he was bringing some ladders round or something and it was like seven o'clock at night. And I was going, oh yeah, that's no problem, that's fine. Hung up the phone, leapt out of bed yeah. <laughs> and had to put clothes back on again. Maybe you telling me that. <laughs> Despite the time, Matthew agreed to the car viewing. He was laid back at the best of times and keen to be helpful. He told the potential buyer that the car was his son Mark's, explaining that he was an officer serving in the RAF in Cyprus and that he was selling it on his behalf. The pair were seen chatting on the doorstep by one of Matthew's neighbours before they disappeared inside. Whilst the pair were busy discussing details of the sale, Alison returned home. The next morning, the Red Ford Escort was gone. Six miles away in Hornchurch, Matthew's brother Derek was growing frustrated. He'd arranged for Matthew to drive to his that morning so the pair could go trout fishing together. Getting fed up of waiting, he called his brother at home, but got no reply. Meanwhile, in Forest Gate, eight miles west of Hornchurch and less than three miles from Barking, Staff at a local bank were getting worried that their colleague, Alison Mannering, hadn't shown up for work. It was unusual for Alison not to call in sick or to let someone know she wouldn't be at work. Alison's fiancé, Gordon, called the branch later that day to be told that she wasn't in and was surprised to hear this. He told her colleagues that he'd been with her until late the previous evening and she seemed fine then. He put the phone down and called Alison at home. Like Derek, he got no reply. He tried again later that evening with the same result. The following day, Saturday the 25th of April, Gordon met up with Derek who had a spare key to his brother's house and the pair of them let themselves in. They noted that the lights were all off and the curtains were drawn. They shouted out in the gloom but didn't get an answer. Having a quick look around, they realised that nobody was there and then left, baffled. Derek returned the next day, alone, and found the house the same as it was before, 
Still, nobody was home. The day after that, still confused at the apparent disappearance of their loved ones, Derek and Gordon went back to the house again. This time, they chose to open the curtains and turn on some lights. What on earth took them so long to turn on some bloody lights? I know. What they saw horrified them. Matthew's armchair and the carpet around it were soaked in blood. They wasted no time in calling the police. I'm baffled as to what took so long, in all honesty. I mean, don't forget, if anyone goes missing, you don't have to wait 24 hours to report them missing to the police. You could do it straight away. And the fact that both Matthew and Alison were missing, it should have been reported much sooner than it was. Yeah, I can't imagine being engaged to somebody and then vanishing one evening and me just going, ah. Mm. I know it was okay. different back in the early 90s because there wasn't that constant mobile phone contact, but even so. No, but if you're expecting somebody to be, so say we're engaged and I'm ex- I've seen you in the evening, I'm expecting you to be at work the next day. Nothing has been said to the contrary. Mm. If you weren't then in work and I couldn't raise you on the phone and I went round to your house and there was no one there and all the curtains were drawn, I think I'd be a bit alarmed. Yeah, definitely. Detective Superintendent Mike Morgan from Scotland Yard's Major Incident Pool and Barking CID Detective Inspector Phil Burrows took charge of the investigation. They visited the property and were baffled at what was set out before them. Aside from the bloodstained chair and carpet, they found two bloodstained cushion covers in the washing machine as well as more blood splashes in the bathroom. Somebody had tried to clean up the scene, but had done so poorly. I'll say so if there was a bloodstained chair and carpet. Yeah, and pillows in the wash. <laughs> Just it's bizarre. That's somebody who does with their mum still. If I put it in the washing machine, the washing machine fairy will come and turn it on. <laughs> no, they wouldn't put it in the washing machine, they'd just leave it on the floor somewhere. The door frame, which led from the living room to the hall, had been smashed, and a half-hearted attempt at repairing the damage with filler and paint had been made. On closer inspection, they realised it was the result of a shotgun being fired. Shotgun pellets were still embedded in the door frame. Handwritten documents were also found. One was a receipt for the sale of a red Ford Escort Cabriolet XR3i, for £7,750 to a Mr Sinclair. The other was a note from Alison, clearly signed by her and in her handwriting, which explained that she and her father had chosen to go away for a few days and that she would explain why later. Bear in mind, Derek didn't have a key to Matthew's house, so why would Alison be leaving a note for her fiancé in the house where he wasn't going to be able to see it? Yeah. Seems weird. Very weird. Totting up what was missing, the police determined that as well as the escort, Alison's car was also missing, along with some jewellery, checkbooks, building society books, a camera and a few other items. The police decided to hold a press conference and on Wednesday the 29th of April, the national newspapers all ran stories on the missing man rings. The police had only revealed that the pair had vanished in, quote, strange and suspicious circumstances, end quote. The only clue they gave was of a possible suspect described as a young man, possibly of mixed race, with a goatee beard and moustache, who had been seen talking to Matthew Mannering beside the missing escort. Later that afternoon, 25-year-old Benjamin Lane, a delivery driver earning £150 a week for Selfridges in Oxford Street, walked into Barking Police Station and told the front desk that he wanted to speak to the officers running the Mannering case. Lane was mixed race, with a goatee beard and moustache, In the words of Avril Lavigne, could I make it any more obvious? Mm -hmm. The son of a leading Ghanaian author and poet, Lang possessed an IQ of 150, but as we'll see, a high IQ is not the same as common sense. He gained 10 O-levels and 4 A-levels at school in 1986. He was accepted for a place at Loughborough University. He told officers that he'd seen the newspapers that day and confirmed that he was the man who'd been seen talking to Matthew Mannering. 
He explained that he'd seen the car advertised and had gone there to buy it, paying £7,750 in cash and taking the car the same night, but swore that when he'd left, both Matthew and Allison had been alive and well. The police were keen to dig further and asked Lang where the car was now. Lang responded by telling the officer that he had sold it at a car auction in Enfield the previous Monday. They then asked where he had been on Friday the 24th of April. Before Lang could answer, police revealed to him that when they discovered that bank cards and cheques had been stolen, they notified every bank and building society in East London and Essex. Blimey, that's a fair view. It really is. They went on to explain that in the Friday in question, a man had walked into a nationwide building society and attempted to take £200 from Matthew Mannering's account that an eagle-eyed bank worker had realised the signature given didn't match the one on the account and refused to hand over the money. Suspecting that this could be a fraud attempt, the bank teller activated a hidden surveillance camera which captured the man who was claiming to be Mannering. The police had the footage and the image clearly showed Benjamin Lang was that man. Lang was shocked at this, but did his best to explain his way out, saying, quote, It was among the documents for the car. I don't know how it got there. Okay, I'll try to get some money with it, but that's all, end quote. Yes, because I would definitely do that, wouldn't you? But yeah, car, someone's bank details were accidentally in amongst there. Definitely go and try to take out 200 quid. Why not? Yeah. Despite his protestations, it gave the police the right to keep him in for fraud, which allowed them extra time to continue investigating the missing persons. As detectives looked into Lang's history, they found that he was already known to them. Despite being all fairly minor affairs... All five of his convictions were for armed robbery in 1987. He'd used a replica pistol to rob five taxi drivers and when caught, was sentenced to six years youth custody. He'd been released in 1990 after serving less than half his time. Officers also spoke to the car auction house in Enfield where Lang said he'd sold the car. They confirmed that he had indeed sold the car and that Lang had sold it in his own name. Which helps explain why he'd come forward to detectives. Surely fraud 101 is to not use your own name? Hell, we even played an indoor escape game not so long ago and even the thief in that had a pseudonym. <laughs> You'd think it was common sense, <laughs> wouldn't you, if you are applying to it? I can only assume that he wasn't. I don't know. The auction company revealed that the car had sold for 7600 which meant that after auction fees, Lang would have walked away with just £7,000. In other words, Lang would have lost over £700 in less than a week had his story been true. It still wasn't enough to charge him with murder, though. Instead, police charged him with fraud for trying to get money from Malcolm Mannering's account nationwide, and he was remanded in custody at Pentonville Jail in London. See, what I don't understand is he told police that he'd bought the car for cash, for £7,750. Mm. Why didn't he just tell the police, oh, I bought the car for cash for six and a half grand, and then flipped it and sold it for 7000 something and made profit? Had he put it down on the, on the documentation? He had, yeah. Actually, he put it, there was yeah. a receipt there. Ah, oh, well done, yes. <laughs> The dealer who had brought the car from the auction house was quickly traced. Police checked the carpet in the boot and found that it was still damp with blood. Blood, which when checked by forensics, matched the blood found at the house. Why would you not clean the car properly <laughs> before you sell it? See, I'm just thinking, how much blood if the car is still damp with soaked blood. in blood? Yes, yeah, true. Was that a week later? That was, yeah, within a week, yeah. <sighs> Detectives were now convinced that Lang had killed the pair, and then used their own car to carry away the bodies. But there was still more evidence to come. A neighbour of Lang's approached police with a camera, which he claimed Lang had asked him to look after. It was the same camera, stolen from the Mannerings. And when detectives raided Lang's home in Beckton, East London, just a couple of miles away from the scene of the crime, they found exercise books, 
where Lang had sketched out plans to get money. These plans included stealing cars, but also touched on the problem of being able to sell them afterwards, as he wouldn't have the correct ownership papers. The plans then went on to detail about looking through local papers for a car for sale where he would find an elderly victim. His plan was to buy a car, and when the ownership papers were produced, to then kill the victim and make it look like a suicide. Because all suicidal people choose to sell their cars before they kill themselves, obviously. Well, immediately before they kill themselves yeah. as well. Not even like in the weeks preceding yeah. where you think, oh, I'll get rid of stuff. No, no. Yeah. Get rid of stuff, spend all the cash, and then go out. Yeah. No. Ridiculous. The exercise book plans finished with a shopping list of things needed to carry out such a plan. These included a pump-action shotgun, a crossbow, what the fuck? Handcuffs and bin liners. And what is it with criminals making a fucking list? I know. <laughs> Jesus Christ, if you're going to do that, at least throw it away. I think this is where the whole intelligence thing comes into play. <laughs> they can't remember everything. Now, see, I know what I'm like. I write stuff down on a shopping list, go to the shops, come back. Half the fucking items I haven't bought. Yeah. And that's not just because of lockdown that they don't have the stuff in it. It's because I've just gone, la, 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 la. No, I'll just miss those bits out completely. So, oh, I don't know. It's when you go to the shops for one particular item and then come out with 17 items but forget to pick that one item up and go, ah, oh, man, milk. I forgot to get milk. That's the oldie problem. <laughs> I haven't got any milk, but I've got a crossbow and some handcuffs <laughs> from the centre aisle. <laughs> the middle of the little. <laughs> it was all still circumstantial evidence, though. And in the meantime, Matthew Mannering's son, Mark, had made his way home from Cyprus. He launched a plea for the safe return of his father and sister. Shortly after this, a typed letter was delivered to Matthew Mannering's address in Aldersey Gardens, addressed to Mark. I should just point out that in the script, I've written this out, letter for letter, how it was spelt. And there's loads of typos and spelling mistakes. So if you want to read those out, you crack on. If you want to go over them, that's fine. We'll see how much I stumble over this. <laughs> Quote. Dearest Mark, I know you are very worried about where we are. I can't begin to explain the thought that has gone into Daddy and I leaving. It has been very, very lonely for Daddy since Mum died and all he does now is drink himself to sleep every night. I can't live with him in that state, so we both decided to have a break and try to forget the constant pain. The, sorry for the mistakes, I'm still a bit nervous. Last straw was on Thursday night after we sold the car and Daddy was so drunk he fell and cut his chest. He is all right now, though, and trying to forget the loneliness. I promise you, Mark, I'm looking after him well. Mark, we took some photos. My sentimental jewellery, the car money, our bank books. I think we took yours by mistake, too. Please understand the way we had to do things. It's hard but necessary for Daddy. I can't tell you where we are yet, but we are in London still. I swear to you, we are OK. I left my car behind Plasto Station. You would have traced us too quickly, so Daddy said to leave it. Daddy needs to be happy again, Mark, and I'll do it for him. Please understand, we both love you so much, and it's so hard to ask you to understand, but try to for now. Once Daddy sorts out his feelings, and I feel better about the termination I had to have, it hurts too much to go into that now. We will send you photos from Daddy's camera when we develop them. Love, always in God, Daddy and Alison. End quote. Now, there's a few things there. Um, the main one for me is the fact that why would she disappear when she was just about to move in with her fiancé. Yeah, it makes no sense. Doesn't, does it? And why would you not be in touch with your fiancé and say, look, this is going on with my dad, I'm going to have to take him away for a few days or whatever, we're going yep. to go and try and sort him out, but I'll be in touch. Yeah, no. all very odd. Absolutely mental. This letter caused suspicions with the police because of the clumsy attempts to explain away the bloodstains. 
Alison had also not told her family about her abortion, leading police to believe that Lang had forced that from her when she'd returned home. Not only that, but the last line, Love Always in God, was a crude acronym of the surname Lang, spelled L-A-N-I-N-G. Is that him thinking he's being clever? Yeah, probably. Given his IQ level, who knows. It did give police calls to check for Alison's car, though, which was found, as it said in the letter, behind Plasto Station. I should say that was found, not food, as it said in the script. <laughs> Detectives were convinced that the letter had been drawn up by Lang and subsequently delivered by a sympathetic friend. Just over a week after the pair disappeared, on the 1st of May, Lang was charged with their kidnapping. The day after he appeared in court, where he was remanded back into custody on the kidnap charge, detectives were contacted by Sharon Thompson. She revealed herself to be a girlfriend of Lang's, living in Greening Street, Abbey Wood, a town on the Kent-London border. She explained that she had returned home the previous weekend to find Lang there. He was tired and sweaty, as he told her that he had dug over the back garden for her. Can you see where this story is going? Oh, God. Police took no time at all in responding, and within hours there was a team of officers at Greening Street. Speaking to a neighbour, they had it confirmed that Lang had been working at one end of the garden with a spade and a pickaxe, even in the pouring rain. Hmm, that's not suspicious. No, totally normal behaviour. I was gardening in the rain. <laughs> Forensic experts erected a tent over the part of the garden which showed signs of recently being dug up. Slowly working their way through the soil, they uncovered a black plastic bin liner around two feet down. By the time they'd excavated the site fully, they'd unearthed a grave just over six feet long and three feet wide. In the grave were ten bin liners which contained the dismembered remains of Matthew and Alison. Oh my God. And not exactly, but that is no depth at all. Is no, it for, not really. For a grave. Three, well, yeah, two feet down. Oh, Nothing, is it? No. Their bodies had been beheaded and had the limbs removed. The post-mortem revealed that Matthew had been shot at point-blank range, his heart being shredded by the bullets from the gun. Alison had been strangled. The bodies were then taken apart using a hacksaw and a Stanley knife, which were traced back to Lang's own toolkit. Oh, God. And no matter how much people might want money, I cannot, for the life of me, imagine being that desperate that you would do that to somebody. Chop up two people, kill and chop up two people for seven or eight grand. Finally, police had enough to charge Lang with two counts of murder. A few days later, a fingertip search which had lasted several days took place across an area of scrubland around Cypress Place, not far from Lang's Beckton home. They found plastic bin liners containing Matthew Mannering's driving licence ripped into pieces, as well as items of Alison's jewellery. They also found two sets of handcuffs which they traced back to a shop where Lang had purchased them shortly before the killings. Sharon Thompson, Lang's girlfriend, was brought in for questioning in an effort to locate the gun from the shooting. She told them that after the killing, he had hidden the gun under the stairs at her home. And she hadn't talked to say anything? Well, not only, but no, there's not a single one of my boyfriends that I would possibly think, yeah, put a gun under my stairs. Hold on a second, how many boyfriends have you got? <laughs> I'm thinking in the past. <laughs> oh, right, okay. While detectives were searching the Cypress Place wasteland, Thompson contacted Lang's best friend. 21-year-old Mark Leslie, to tell him where the gun was hidden. He moved it to a new hiding place before Lang's brother Peter retrieved it and threw it in the Thames. Just loads of them all involved, passing it from one to another. I just wouldn't, if a friend said to me, 
Hey, yeah, there's a gun that I used to kill some bloke, and I've hidden it under the stairs at my girlfriend's. Can you go get it? <laughs> Fuck off. Fuck off. Nine, nine, nine. <laughs> it took persistent questioning of all three of them, but eventually Thompson, Leslie, and Peter Lang all admitted to helping to dispose of the weapon. Peter Lang took detectives to the stretch of water where he said he had thrown the gun into the river, and police divers soon recovered a sawn-off, single-barrelled, automatic shotgun, which was used as evidence in court. All three were eventually given a conditional discharge and a charge of conspiring to pervert the course of justice was held on file. Now, that annoys me as well because the delaying closure for a family and they just get basically a warning. Yeah. Not good. No. If it's down to me, they wouldn't just get a warning. I would taser them <laughs> as well as punishment. To be fair, that's your answer to anything. Any crime drama, any <laughs> documentary series involving the police that we see, you're straight in there with, Tase them! I would tase them! I would. The children, my children joke about how much that's what I would do and how I couldn't possibly be a police officer because all I would do would be just taser every single fucking person I came across. <laughs> Acting suspicious. Taser! Bless. And I have to live with you. I know, right? That's why I never upset you. It's a really good job I don't actually have a, a taser at home, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Have you practiced piano? No. <laughs> we did have one of those painting things once, remember that? Where you pressed oh. the button and it gave a little electric shock. Yeah. You struggled with that. I didn't like that, no. <laughs> Benjamin Lang's trial began at London's Old Bailey on the 24th of February, 1993. He chose to plead not guilty to both charges. The evidence is pretty damning. <laughs> what listeners can't see is a look we just exchanged. And we read that out. Really? <laughs> Prosecuting counsel Michael Stuart Moore, QC, spoke of Alison's death, saying, quote, Alison's fake that night and the ordeal she went through can be pieced together from a large number of terrible clues. She was strangled to death, but not before she went through some sort of mental torture or duress. She was physically assaulted and may have been sexually assaulted as well. Her hands were manacled to render her even more helpless than she already was. End quote. That's just evil. Really That's is. not just about the money, is it, when you're doing that to somebody no, as well? not at all. Lang claimed in court that a terrorist group called the Fijian Freedom Fighters were blackmailing him and that they were responsible. The jury dismissed this story. Not surprised. Utter bullshit. Just over a month later, on the 30th of March 1993, Lang was found guilty by unanimous verdict. Judge Robert Limbery. Let me just stop you there to uh, look at the judge name. I like this judge name, but only because it's the answer to the question, are you Limber? Well, Limbery. Limbery. <laughs> judge Robert Limbery sentenced Lang to a minimum prison term of 25 years. Lang's current whereabouts are unknown. In other words, he could be out free and roaming the streets. Oh, joy. Mm. And that was the case of Benjamin Lang, the classifieds killer. What are your thoughts? Well, I wonder if somebody that you were dating said, can you please, can I store this gun under your stairs? Would you let them? I wouldn't. Would you? No. Hell no. Even if they said, yeah, it hasn't been used for anything, can I just store this gun here? Yeah. Well, I know. Fuck off. It'd still be a no from me. I don't want to have a gun in the house. Yeah. We live in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not an, it's not a common thing to have a gun knocking around. No. And if you do have a gun, you've got to have a gun licence and a gun safe and a gun cabinet and all that kind of stuff. You do. You wouldn't just shove it under the stairs. There are very strict, very strict rules about weapons in this country. Mm. And let's go back to the start of the podcast. If you'd agreed to sell a car to someone the following morning and they turned up on your doorstep at 10.30 at night, would you let them in to sort the car out? 
No. No. I've been in my pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs> On pure principle, I would just turn around and go, we agree tomorrow, come back tomorrow. Don't yeah. be a dick. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Let us know your thoughts. You can email us, dan at sublimetruecrime.com or elaine at sublimetruecrime.com Or you can reach us via the Facebook page. Just search for Sublime True Crime. Or STC. Or STC. <laughs> yeah, you won't find STC on the appetite. <laughs> but I can pronounce that. You can. What's well done, you? <laughs> I know. If you're enjoying the series, please leave us a review. Preferably a five-star one if you could. Because not only does it help us reach more people, but also you would believe how much it makes our day. It really does. <laughs> I was so pleased when I found it, because there was one of those reviews was from two or three weeks ago. Like, oh my God, we've got a review. <laughs> so um, yeah, please do leave us a review because it, it causes such excitement. And we are in lockdown still, obviously. Um, you know, It's a little thing nice. that keeps us going. It really does. If you want to leave us a review, you can do it at ratethispodcast.com forward slash STC. STC as in Sublime True Crime. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast when we can. And if you can think of any cases that you'd like us to cover, please do let us know. In the meantime, make sure you listen to our True Crime podcast, which we promoted at the start of the show. And until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.